All right, everyone, it is time again for Tavern Voices. Stop what you're doing. Unless you're driving, then you can keep driving, but you should be listening intently to the next half hour or so as Tower Crawley, my co-host, and I dive into some issues uh, national and statewide. Um, you know, we, we, we want to make sure that you're informed, but we also want to do it in a, in a fun way. So, so Tyler, what have you been doing that's, that's fun these days? Um, I don't want it to be fun. I just want it to be informative. I want us to be very PBS-like, very NPR-like, and then maybe we can get a government grant, and then sky's the limit. Then we don't have to work anymore. It's like hitting the lottery. Yeah, so. you know, I mean, we're going to get to that later on, but I really think getting getting government money is the best way to be financially secure for the rest of your life. Oh, we are going to be getting to that later. Absolutely. Uh, but yes, getting government money, guaranteed government money is essentially winning the lottery. I mean, it's the same thing. It's guaranteed government money. It's like a lottery, so. but by, by like gunpoint. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's It's a different kind of lottery. It's... It's a lot more expensive for a ticket usually. That's the only thing that's different. Because usually you have to have like a lot of degrees and so you got to spend a lot of money to buy the ticket. But once you get it, you're good to go. Well, you always hear these stories about, uh, you know, this came out with, I mean, every budget, omnibus bill, the um, the big, what, what was the, the, the big spending bill under Obama? The shovel ready? What was it called? Oh yeah, the, I don't the Recovery remember. and Reinvestment Act. Yes, whatever. That's it. Um, what, whatever that that big plan I was. I blocked that from my memory. <laughs> it was such, it was so traumatic. I it's like I, I PTSD when I think about it. So I, I don't I don't think about it. It was it was a trillion dollars in the trash can. But what I was uh, you know you always hear in these in these big spending bills they will have some sort of obscure project. You know it's half a million dollars to study how monkeys are affected by cocaine use or something. You know. That's what we need to get into, Tyler. We don't need to be podcasting. We need to just get one of these really lucrative grants and then just invest the money and and retire. That's true. That's true. Or what we could do is be a, is combine the two. So it could be like instead of like as you mentioned like monkeys on cocaine, it was like what if we did a podcast on cocaine? They could get a grant for that. <laughs> or what if what if we did a podcast on LSD? Like we just we just do all these different drugs while we're doing the podcast and get government grants to do that. I think I think it's a winner. Well, I, I'll let you. I, I, I will be the one. <laughs> you can be the control. Yeah, I'll be the You'll control. Be the control. I'll be. I'll be the. I'll be the experiment to see how different the show is versus. What's weird though is that it would be no different. Like I would still be scatterbrain all over the place. It'd be no difference. It would be the worst study since shrimps on a treadmill. I think more than likely, uh, but. I want to go back to my earlier comment about the having all the degrees and everything else. Right. Because yep. today was the battle of experts versus maybe non-experts or different kinds of experts, uh, mostly because President Trump today um, or yeah, earlier today, I guess. Yes. Earlier today uh, refused to support the conclusion of U.S. intelligence agencies that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election, saying at the end of his summit in Helsinki with Russian President Vladimir Putin that the autocrat privately gave him an extremely strong and powerful denial. Now, Democrats, not surprisingly, were outraged, but mostly because Trump didn't use a cool hip way 
to denounce the geopolitical threat of Russia. But the GOP was also highly critical of Trump uh, from more muted responses like Paul Ryan, who said the president must appreciate that Russia is not our ally, to much stronger ones like from Senator John McCain, who released a statement saying the damage inflicted by President Trump's naivete, egotism, false equivalence, and sympathy for autocrats is difficult to calculate, but it is clear that the summit in Helsinki was a tragic mistake, concluding saying no prior president has ever abased himself more adjectly uh, before a tyrant. And Kevin, my question, how embarrassed should we be, if at all? Some are saying that these are all the dumb experts that thought Trump was going to lose the election. So should, you know, who, you know, of course, this is what they think. But, you know, real Americans saw the value in what Trump did. But the denunciations were pretty strong. So what's your opinion on it? Well, I think, first of all, what you have to (laughs) – I don't think I've ever seen a more awkward piece of television – than Vladimir Putin and Trump standing at the podiums today. I thought it was I thought it was just fantastic because you have Trump is very awkward. I mean, he's he's a tall guy and he kind of stands there in an unassuming way. And then you have Putin, who's clearly killed a bunch of people in his past. Uh-huh. And you've got the Russian translators doing the voiceover. And so I'm sitting here watching this press conference just going, this is really strange because I think they have a lot of similarities. You know, I think that they both talk a big game. And so I would be really interesting to know like how their meeting truly went. Uh, but as far as, as the denial of the, the Russian interference and all this stuff, I, I think that, I think it's all the game that they all want to play. And I don't pay attention to people who think that Russia did it or the people who said that Russia had nothing to do with it. I think it's in between. I think Russia absolutely medals and things just like we do. I mean, if, if you don't think that we're out there trying to influence elections in the geopolitical space, then then I don't think, you know, you're not paying attention to our track record. While at the same time, you know, I, I just think that there's it's so hard to find what might actually be the middle ground because people think that some people think Trump can do no wrong. And some people think that no matter what Trump does, it is wrong. So I a short answer is I have no idea, Tyler. I drug that I drug that <laughs> way out way too long. Well, I will say this. I will say this is that I mean, I get the argument that we do it too, but we always do it with sort of look at it in two different ways, which is does it benefit America? And is it better for that country overall? Like when you when we remove, you know, Saddam Hussein or we remove, you know, you know, people have talked about Bashar al-Assad, for example, which Syria, which is part of this conflict uh, with Trump and and some of the more uh, experts on foreign policy. And Putin and other countries get involved solely for their own benefit. I mean, one of the problems that you could actually argue with America is that, yes, America does things for its own benefit, but it also does it for the benefit of sort of spreading democracy. That's uh, what you were and- told to believe, Tyler. That's the conspiracy. <laughs> And I truly believe that America does do – yes, like I said, they, they have their own interests. Uh, it's you – know, they care about how it affects America. But I think it's also about making the country more democratic in most cases. Even when it goes bad, I think it's still about trying to make the country better. And I don't think that's why Russia or China or whoever else gets involved in elections. But the weird thing about Trump – and this is what's so hard is that – to figure out about Trump is that he says one thing, but he does something else. Like, 
He, when it comes to rhetoric, he is the softest president we may have ever had with regards to Russia. I mean, it's like insane how a week he comes across, but his action, and a lot of that's heavily influenced by sort of the neocons that are still exist in the GOP, is he is far tougher than Barack Obama. I mean, far tougher on the things that he's done. And so it's, it, it's very weird because Trump is someone who you have to kind of ignore his tweets and even the things that he says because – Yes, in some cases it's true. He will do what he says he's going to do. But a lot of times with this foreign policy stuff, he doesn't. Uh, like I said with Russia, you know, his, his rhetoric, very weak, but action, strong. And so it, it, it's very weird because he has been stronger than Obama. So all these like Obama, you know, cronies who are so angry at Trump for not being stronger. First of all, like I said, he you know, that's – Obama was the same one that laughed off Romney's conclusion that Russia was our greatest geopolitical threat. Now they're all making that exact same argument. But Obama didn't do anything. I mean, Obama's policy is basically what girls do when they're mad at their boyfriends. They just stop talking to them. Like, I mean, you look at North Korea, like, what do we do? Nothing. We just stop talking to them. Russia, we we stop talking to them. Like, that was Obama's solution for everything. We just stop talking to that country. Like, aha, silent treatment. And Trump's actually doing something with Russia. Uh, I'd like to see him do more, but he's doing more than Obama, probably more than Hillary would have done. But yet he talks. He's so weak. His rhetoric is so weak. You know, it's I, very mean, I think a lot of this and I'll be short on this, but there's so much of this that reminds me of of kind of the Nixon presidency. Right. I mean, he was such public enemy to a lot of people. Um, he was actually very effective yeah. in a lot of what he did. Um and I, you know, and I, I think that the hard part is, is that people like you and I, like even even paying so much attention to what's going on, we aren't getting the full story. Because even last week, while he was in, um, when he was in England, and you had a news story come out that he was bashing Prime Minister May, and then he's at a press conference, and they're talking about how they're best friends, and it's, there is so much smoke that goes on. In, in these environments that I, I don't know what's going on. What I mean, and, and what could effectively change? I mean, you, you, I think some people are ready for him to just fire up the tanks and go into Crimea and, and run Russia out and start a, a, a military action over there. Um, and some people don't even want him talking to, to him or Kim Jong-un or so. I, I don't know. I don't, you, you're not going to make anyone happy. And I, as much as I hate to say this next phrase, I think he's actually doing things that might be effective in the long run. I'm not sure yet, but I, you know, we'll, we'll see. I will say real quick. I'll, I'll just say this is that I'd like to see Trump be, you know, I mean, and the thing is, I don't like this argument that we're, there's two options. Either, you know, we kowtow to Russia or we go to war with Russia. I mean, that those aren't the two options. Those are never the two options. When it comes to, you know, dealing with a country like Russia, there are many options out there. And yeah, I mean, it's, I think, I do think some of the, I mean, people that are like, this is the darkest days for America foreign policy, like all, it, it, it's, I think that's a little <laughs> ridiculous. But at the same time, yeah, I do think that it is unprecedented for the President of the United States to, when asked a question, do you believe, Russia, Vladimir Putin, who we know is a guy that, you know, talk about hiding information. This guy kills people that disagree with him. He believes Putin over our own intelligence community. 
And I get the outrage over that. That is, I mean, I know it's just words, but you know, words matter. And so I do think that Trump needs to be careful uh, just from that standpoint. But I think at the same time, like I said, his actions are far stronger than his words. So hopefully the actions continue to stay up. But at some point, I'm worried the actions are going to match the weak words. So hopefully not. But and, we'll see. And, and let me mention this one point um, just sort of to the technical side of the evidence against Russia hacking and interference and all of this stuff. If if you are a computer hacker or a group of hackers, especially ones who have any sort of government backing, if, if you are that good and you're going to be able to hack into email servers and, and computers and, and record keystrokes and do all these things – I seriously doubt you're going to be identified, right? So I, I think that the the issue here is that there's probably more more to the story, and that's that's all I think. There there could be more to the story, but you also and the thing is, I mean, they have indicted people. I mean, they clearly have evidence, and I think that there could be more. In the, the, what I, I think to your point is that there could be even more serious issues that we that we haven't released or we don't know about. I think that you're right that what we're talking about with the indictments that came out on Friday, uh, the the Russian intelligence, the, the, the people that were involved, the technology that was used, that there's, there could be even worse stuff. I mean, when it comes to cyber hacking, Russia is, is, is leading the game in some ways. And so I'm sure they're doing all kinds of things that we don't know about and might be unaware of. But the fact that we caught this makes me wonder, my gosh, what are they doing that we haven't caught or haven't figured out yet? So I think you are correct. But the fact that we've caught doing doing what they have does make me wonder what else they've possibly done. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think it will be interesting to see what happens. And as as more develops, obviously, we're going to talk about it here. I did want to go ahead and move on because, I mean, you know, we're we're close to uh, to get into the uh, to the point of that story, I think. Um, so I know earlier you mentioned PBS, you know, and how great it would be to get a government grant. Well, they have this show on PBS called Firing Line. And while on firing line this week, the candidate with more last names than good ideas, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, said that capitalism will not always exist in the world. She went on to talk about our current, quote, Wild West hyper-capitalism, can't make that up, uh, environment that we're living in. And I'm not even going to touch on the fact that she called Israel occupiers. But, um, you know, I, I really wonder, Tyler, how truly out of touch is the new left and is the United States really ready for a new season of the OC? <laughs> that is true. Well, I, we're going to get one either way. We're ready. I mean, that's like a plus 17 Democrat district. So unless she just does something insane, which, by the way, I'm glad you brought up the Israel comment because I saw a lot of people pointing out when Trump says things that he doesn't clearly know a lot about and what do people put do people argue uh, that Trump does his I didn't do the uh, readings over the summer book report. <laughs> and I know because I've been that <laughs> kid before. Notes, right? <laughs> and that's clearly what she was doing. Like she'd heard, you know, other Democrats. She'd heard probably Bernie Sanders and others use the illegal occupation of, of Palestine. And so when she was asked to expound upon that by Margaret Hoover, she basically was like, oh, I don't really know anything about it because she didn't. She just heard it. And the thing is, that's the problem with being a Democrat is that normally when you do interviews with Democrats, they don't 
ask for clarification. You can just say things and they go, oh, yes. Like if she was on Rachel Maddow's show and she said the illegal occupation of Palestine, Rachel Maddow would have been like, oh, that's a great point. Would have moved on. But a Republican. And here's what's interesting. So firing line was William Buckley's show. Margaret Hoover has brought it back. But Stephen Miller, not Trump Stephen Miller, FoxNews.com Stephen Miller, uh, was actually pointing out that the new show is not a very good representation of what Buckley uh, show no, is not at all. And the fact, yeah, and the fact is, is like, I like Margaret Hoover, but she seems to be more obsessed with being civil than with being conservative. And Buckley, yes, understood the point of civility, but he was also put conservative ahead of civility in some instances. <laughs> Many and, instances, if yeah. I say so. And, and so what she should have said, and, she, and, and this is what Stephen Miller pointed out, was then she said the illegal occupation of Palestine. Buckley would have said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Uh, who told you that stupid idea? And I mean, it would have been even worse than what it was because Margaret Hoover was kind of nice. Oh, well, can you expound upon that? And then they just kind of joked about how she had no idea what she was talking about. And they moved on. Buckley would have like excoriated her for saying that and not having any idea what she was talking about. And so and I give her credit for going on a Republican show, but she really should have been taken to the shed on that one. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she clearly doesn't know what she's talking about with foreign policy. She even admitted that at the end, you know, towards the end of that one little clip that I've seen on the Internet and her economics. She says she has an economics degree. Uh, but once again, to go back to the famous Reagan quote about you can tell someone that reads Marx because they're a Marxist. You can tell someone that's a capitalist because they you know understand Marx or whatever the, the, the quote is, because if you actually read Karl Marx, everyone has to become a capitalist and then you know, it creates this small group of bourgeoisies and then the proletariats, you know, rise up. And so, and so I've always said, if you're a true Marxist, a true capitalist socialist, then you should be supporting the expansion of capitalism around the world because the more everyone becomes capitalist and the quicker we get to this Marxist utopia. And here she is saying like, oh, all this capitalism is bad. And it's like, no, actually that's exactly what Marx said was going to happen. I, you know, but once again, it's a plus 17 district. She beat Joe Crowley. She's going to be the the Democrat congresswoman. But it'll be interesting to see how much play she gets because she clearly kind of embarrassed herself with this. And you got and, and the leadership's already very worried about her because she's bucking all of, you know, what she's supposed to be doing. And so I wonder if they'll be able to use this as an excuse to kind of drop her profile a little bit and kind of keep her out of the news. But she's she's definitely a good representation of a 28 year old Democrat. I'll say that much. Well, that's that's my my concern is that this this persona is kind of the the new face of the new left. And it's very concerning to me that they have such a a lack of understanding of I I don't want to say a lack of understanding. They have a, a specialized viewpoint of the understanding of something like economics. Right. When when you have people who truly believe that we're in a hyper capitalized society right now with all of the regulations and rules and oversight and taxation. I mean, this is far from the the wild west of capitalism that we're living in. And and they think that this is this is where we're at. And and to go even further, what she's talking about in the clip is that it's brought up how low our unemployment rate is right now. And she says that the unemployment rate is just low because everyone is working two jobs and that people can't get by. So if the <laughs> unemployment rate was bad, it would be capitalism's fault for failing. The unemployment rate is low. It's 
capitalism's fault for being bad. It's sort of the um, the climate change rationality for economics. If it gets hotter, it's climate change. If the winters are worse, it's climate change. More storms, it's climate change. Less storms, fewer storms, it's climate change. And I feel like that's what the the democratic socialist agenda is: is that if you're if you're successful and getting wealthy like Bernie Sanders, you have a vacation home, you're making a million dollars a year. That's that's pointing out how awful capitalism is, yet you're embracing it. Uh, we're going to get to some other people later on in the show who are all about some uh, some socialism and who are profiteering off of uh, you know the capitalist system. And so I just wonder, like, how out of touch can people really be? I mean, higher education devotes at least 20 percent of your four years to trying to embrace Marxism. And how do they leave with such a, a lack of understanding of, of how it works? Wait, did she really say that the reason the unemployment rates low is because everyone's working two jobs? Oh, that's a direct quote, my friend. That's a direct quote, because that makes no sense. If everyone's working two jobs, our unemployment rate should either be insanely high um, because people are – if you're working two jobs, you're taking a job from someone else that should be working that job. So either <laughs> – the problem with that is that our unemployment rate – so let's say we were to change that. The unemployment rate would drop off the map. I mean we'd, we'd have like a, a, a negative unemployment rate. <laughs> we would have – because there would be so many job openings – Versus how many people are working. I, that doesn't even make sense. You couldn't even plot that on like – and you, that, just, that just defies logic. If everyone's working two jobs, you would have a higher unemployment rate because you'd be taking jobs from people. And if that's not the case, then you have a problem where we'd have so many job openings and no one to fill them. Our unemployment rate would be zero. Yeah. So she's just – She's insane. Yeah, no. She's, she's making an <laughs> – <laughs> to blame capitalism no matter what the current conditions are. And you can say a lot of things about capitalism and inequality, and and there are so many talking points you can go down, but I don't think that the unemployment rate is is where you need to point the finger. Well, but I also, yeah, that's, yeah, I can't, I can't even get over that quote. Like, it, <laughs> We can just take a break if you want. We can come back in a few minutes. We can just pause. People just, are driving down the road. Uh, they can just take a minute, you know, enjoy enjoy some show tunes. I know. I'm thinking about it. I just can't. That, that, that quote blows my mind. Uh, but speaking of jobs, speaking of jobs, for the third year in a row here in North Carolina, enrollment has fallen in North Carolina traditional public schools, even as the number of students continues to rise in charter schools, private schools, and those who are homeschooled. The percentage of the state's 1.8 million students attending traditional public schools has dropped to 80% and is continuing to fall rapidly, meaning nearly one in five North Carolina students is not attending a traditional public school. Kevin, with teacher salaries at an all-time high, thanks to the GOP General Assembly, shouldn't teachers be cheering these smaller class sizes with the higher salaries? This sounds like a win-win to me. It is a win-win. It's a win for everyone. I mean, why would you not? Isn't the whole point that you want students to have the best environment possible? Isn't that why they, that you have advocates on the left for busing students all across counties and districts? So why, why wouldn't you want them to have the opportunity to go to a charter school or private school or be homeschooled? Uh, I, I, it sounds great to me. And the best part is no matter what these students do, 
their parents are still having to pay property taxes for your school. (laughs) So if you're a teacher and you're having 20% fewer students in your classroom and you're still getting the same funding. I don't, I don't, I don't see how you can lose on this. This is, this is a great, this would be even better than studying chimpanzees on cocaine <laughs> or podcasts on Pod, cocaine. Pod, but here, I mean, here's the coke. real win win. <laughs> here's the real win for the public schools. And this is this is this is this is something that gets missed way too much. Is if someone leaves and goes to private school because their parents are are have enough money to be able to send them to private school. As you pointed out, that money still goes to the public school. So they get 100% of the funding reallocated to all the other students. Let's say someone leaves and goes to a charter school. Charter schools only get 80% on the dollar versus what public schools get. So if a kid goes to charter school, 20% of what that student would cost to educate stays in the system reallocated among everyone else. If someone goes to a private school and gets a $4,200 voucher – it costs nine thousand dollars, I believe, to per pupil uh, per pupil spending. So that means half the money stays in the private school and gets reallocated. So every time a student leaves, whether it's the full amount, fifty percent or twenty percent, it stays in the school and gets reallocated. And so every time a student leaves, our per pupil spending goes up and up and up, and we get smaller class sizes. Why are teachers not? screaming about how awesome this is and it's you know it all gets down to politics but there's another point that i want to make and that is did you see uh, there's been a couple stories about brett kavanaugh and the fact that he went to the exact same high school that neil gorsuch yes, went to. correct and jerome powell also went to the same high school Was it georgetown prep and or something georgetown prep uh, where probably of all my friends growing up in high school, probably 50 to 60% of my friends went there. And I've been there for a bunch of stuff. It's a great school. I mean, top-notch school. And I look at that and I say, I think now it costs $37,000 a year to send a kid to Georgetown Prep day school, 60 grand if they board, because they, a, 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 they did have dormitories there. $37,000 is an insane amount of money. That unless you're rich, you're not going to be able to send your kid there. But if we have an opportunity, they have financial aid at the school. But if you could get some assistance from the state, you could open up this school, this this school of privilege. I mean, people, you know, Democrats talk about privilege all the time. Here is an opportunity to allow a low-income student access to one of the most privileged elite institutions, and yet Democrats fight school vouchers all the time. It blows my mind because I couldn't think of anything better for some of these low-income students than to give them an opportunity to go to one of these schools that they would have no other option. I mean, talk about leveling the playing field, and yet the Democrats fight at every chance they get. It's it's hypocrisy at its worst. Yeah, or, or hypocrisy at its finest, whichever way you want. If you're a glass half full kind of guy, I get it. But um, <laughs> but no, to go back to your point, and this is what you, you, you just said, you, you ask, why wouldn't the teachers be jumping up and down for this? And the reason is, is it's that those who are just 100% into the public education idea want would rather have everyone doing mediocre or poor than to have some doing exceptionally well and if, and others doing mediocre or poor right because that's always the thing if you have yeah. one school that's doing really well there's always an excuse for that well 
it's in an affluent neighborhood. They have higher property taxes. We, you know, we need to take their money to, to send to other schools, or we need to to bus students from other neighborhoods to those schools. And they're always trying to play this game of of putting water from one end of the of the bucket into the other end, thinking that it's going to 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 change the outcome. When really the issue is is that there are problems in public education. There are bad schools. There are bad teachers. There are bad principals. Um, you know. But no one will ever admit that. No one will ever say, you know what, maybe we need to to put a school on probation or turn it upside down or give those students an opportunity to go somewhere else because they, they fight to protect and insulate themselves from anyone looking bad. Because if you admit that one school is doing poorly, then it opens up the scrutiny to every other school or every other classroom. Well. I also like – have you ever noticed that traditional public school advocates will go, oh, that charter school went out of business because it did, it failed? It's like, yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> it wasn't working and so we closed it down and put the money into an institution that is going to work. When Public schools don't close. And so it's funny that they act like when, public, when, tr- when charter schools fail, that it's a sign of the charter school system. No, that's a sign of it's working because this, the models that don't work, we get rid of. And then, you know, because down here, you know, in Southeast North Carolina, the Roger Bacon Academy, we've seen instances where, I mean, they, they have a, a great model and they've had the opportunity to take over schools. Uh, but if it doesn't work, then we find a model that does. And it, oh, it just drives me crazy that they act like that. I mean, it's a sign of, that's a sign of failure when it's actually a sign of success, because if something's not working, you shut it down yeah. and do something else. You'll just keep it open for, you know, for open sake. And I really think that this is a sign of a lot of things. I've talked to, you know, a lot of people our age, Tyler, are having kids and and transitioning different parts of life. And I've heard so many people talk about, I don't want to send my kids to public schools. I mean, there there's somewhat of a backlash. People that that went to public schools, went through the system, come out and they either say that it's not a quality education. They're concerned about what message is being pushed through the school system. Um, there's a lot of concern about safety. And I mean, there, there, there's a lot of things going on. There are a lot of problems inside of the public education system. And I think it's going to take a little bit of I, I love this idea of competition because ultimately the best idea is going to succeed. And what do we want more than the best idea of education for all children? I mean, isn't that well, ultimately what the goal should be? I mean, I think so. And I should also point out that kids your age are having children. People my age are having grandchildren. So. I was about to say. How's your AARP? Uh, <laughs> Can't wait. That social security kicks in. It's giving me money. <laughs> yeah. See, by the time I get to your age, there won't be social security. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm going to spend it all first. Spend it. Spend it wisely. Well, you know who is spending money is the UNC system. So there was a report that came out this week, Tyler, from the Chronicle of Higher Education. And it was a, a, comp- uh, a comprehensive report on compensation at private and public colleges. And so I want to talk a little bit about the public colleges. So apparently in an attempt to put the higher back in higher education, this new report shows that salaries are skyrocketing for university administrators. Just as an example, the UNC president, Margaret Spellings, made just shy of $1 million last year. The UNC chancellor, uh, Carol Fort, came in at a little over 600000 The NC State chancellor, uh, Mr. Woodson, made $826,000. And, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. So once you add in the free housing, vehicles, 
you know, retirement benefits, all these other perks involved in the job. It's not really a half bag gig uh, to work in the UNC system on the back of taxpayers. So, Tyler, now that they have the pay, when will they try putting the education back in higher education? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, you know, what I think is very funny about the story is I wonder if Democrats are now going to turn uh, around on Margaret Spelling because remember they hated her when she got hired. Oh, my gosh. She was from the Bush administration. This is the worst thing ever. But now that she's getting a ridiculous amount of money and conservatives are going to criticize this. They're going to be like, oh, my gosh, we love Margaret Spelling now. <laughs> She's wasting government money and conservatives don't like her. Oh, we totally love her now. So I wonder if they're going to flip. But oh, I mean, they, I will tell you, there was a great piece that was written and there are always great pieces. Um, Let me guess, Kevin Williamson. It, was it National Review? Yes, National Review. Kevin Williamson, a couple of years ago, wrote about this. And he said, it's so funny because Democrats always talk about the Fortune 500 and the CEOs and CEOs and the Wall Street. And he points out that the Fortune 500 is an elite group of 500 people. Like across the entire country, 500 CEOs make that list. Like the average CEO in this country, I think, makes like 200 grand a year because, you know, the average CEO isn't running, you know, Walmart. They're running like a small business. And they said it makes about $200,000 a year. And of course, there's other, other ways, stock options, things like that. They probably find a way to make more money, but it's not a ridiculous amount of money. And what he pointed out that if you really want to see, ridiculous salaries. He's like, read some of these stories that come out about small town county managers making like $400,000 a year. Uh, I think one of the examples he gave was from a home, one of his, uh, I think one his hometown in Texas where a pl- like got, someone was making like $300,000 a year as like the county manager. We've all seen the stories about like the firefighters in New York with overtime who end up making like a million dollars a year or the substitute teachers who with overtime find a way to make $800,000. And he's like, we are the ones that pay for that. Like we get mad that Walmart CEO makes a crazy amount of money and has a golden parachute. But unless you own stock in Walmart, who cares? Like, but we're paying, I mean, not necessarily we are, but the taxpayers in New York are for the guys that, that, that rigged the system. And we've even seen examples, even here in Wilmington, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know that the county manager and city manager make bank, um, for, you know, the average, I think it's like the average salaries, 40, $40,000 here in Wilmington and the county manager or city manager, or whatever, makes like well over six figures. And... The, the whole point purpose of this article was to point out that that is actually how more people are getting rich than becoming like CEOs and horrible capitalism. It's people that are working in government that are making all of this money. And that is not a recipe for success. I mean, at some point, if all the people make getting rich are in government, how are we supposed to pay them when you have it's, it's at some point the seesaw is, is going to tip the other way and we're going to have a major problem because we cannot have government employees making more than the private sector because the private sector is the one that has to pay for it. And I think we're slowly getting Oh, there. you are. And I think um, one quick thing I'll point out on that note, and this came up a lot when there was the conversation over teacher salaries, the protest in Raleigh. And when you look at state employees in North Carolina, for example, and this is the case in most states, state employees still have defined retirement benefits which has all been yeah. disappeared from the private sector because they know they the businesses can't support those kinds of, of um, benefits for employees once they retire. 
Whereas the public sector is still doing that in droves. And we see, I mean, when you look at how much money has to go into the North Carolina retirement system every year just to fulfill future benefits, it's insane. If you want to raise their uh, cost of living pay for retirees 1%, I mean, it's millions of dollars that have to come out of the budget. And so when you when you look at the total package, it's even better for public sector employees. And, you know, you have um, Wanda Green, who is the uh, former county manager in Buncombe County around Asheville, who has been indicted by the FBI now on embezzlement charges. And I think the last total I saw is they they figure that she was involved in misappropriating close to four million dollars in funds while all along making three to four hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> so, I mean, what kind of lifestyle is that? Now, granted, she will hopefully face jail time for that. But let's say she was just making three to four hundred thousand a year to be the county manager. That's not a bad living when the average salary somewhere like like Buncombe County is going to be in the thirty five to forty thousand dollar range. Well, yeah, I mean, let's also not forget probably the famous story here in Wilmington. Billy Williams, head of the ABC system, oh, who was probably, I think, Three, yeah, and his son, who was making three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, and then was embezzling money. He got fired and caught in charge of the felony. But if you remember, there was not a law on the books in North Carolina that if you were caught using misappropriating government funds, that you would lose your pension. And so he's still getting his full pension, and I think he gets about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, despite the fact that he stole from government. Uh, taxpayers. Hey, never forget. And then, then it's done <laughs> as well. And you're just sitting there and I mean, just, I mean, if someone stole from American Express or they were the CEO of American Express or McDonald's or whatever, and they got caught stealing money, McDonald's wouldn't give them a golden parachute. Like they're, 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 they're not even that stupid. There would be a clause in there that said, if you got caught embezzling corporate funds, you would lose any money that you were owed, forfeit everything. But government, nope, we're still paying this idiot. Uh, 120,000 his son's getting like $60,000 and he's not even 40 or he just turned 40, but you're not supposed to be able to collect disability until you're there. It's, it, it is insane. It is. And yet we know yeah, on one that. last point I wanted to get to in this story. And I actually have a short write up and uh, links to the, to this report as well as a couple other articles on tavernvoices.com. But one thing that jumped out to me in this article, and it reminded me of our days back in, uh, in UNCW Tyler, it talked about at UNC how uh, the chancellor made less money than Roy Williams, obviously, who made three million last year. Uh, football coach Larry Fedora, two point one million. Athletic director, just shy of a million. And it said, and then it added two professors in the med- in the medical school. So you're telling me that Chancellor Folt made six hundred and five thousand dollars last year, and there are two professors making more than that. In, 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 in one school. And it reminded me of when they raised our tuition. This was around 2008 or nine. And there was a million dollars they said that we needed to collect. So I went through just the employees making six figures. And I believe there were, there were somewhere around 120 employees just at UNC Wilmington that made six figures. And I said, if you cut their pay 5% for one year, instead of raising 15,000 students tuition, then you would have more than the, than the amount necessary to cover the shortfall. 
So I think that's another thing that we really have to look at is they can say, look at the chancellors, look at the top of the totem pole. They make a lot of money, which is true. But then you have this huge group of professors and provost and associate provost and and and. Well, it's mostly the administrators because what's what's I think is going to happen with with professors. Yes, you have a sum, but a lot of professors at colleges now are adjunct. Um, and then you have, I mean, a lot of professors there don't make it, it's, it's the older professors and then it's the administrators. I mean, I think two thirds of colleges now are administrators. Um, in fact, but the thing is at least a professor provides value to a college. Like if you have a really good professor and he beefs up your whatever department, um, then maybe kids will go there because they want to learn from this professor, but who goes to a school because you guys have a great you know, executive vice president of communications oh, and like the whatever. Absolutely right. No one goes there because of that. And that is that is what is so frustrating is that even the ridiculous salaries, even if they were going to – it's like when college coaches make insane amounts of money, like everyone freaks out like, oh my gosh, Nick Saban makes all this money. It's like, are you kidding me? The guy brings in like tens of millions of dollars. We're probably shortchanging him by only giving him uh, seven or eight million, whatever his contract is. But you could have a good professor that could be worked at. It could, could you know, bring up the your medical department or whatever it is. But an administrator is never going to do that. And yet their salaries are on the rise and professors are actually going the opposite direction because colleges realized, hey, yeah, we can start hiring the, you know, other people and get adjunct professors. And it's 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 so bizarre. What's, uh, we're, there, there is a bomb or not a bomb, but there is a, a bubble that is about to burst with regards to college education in this country. Uh, and when it does, it's going to be, it's going to be crazy. No, it, it, it is. And that's why I try to cover it as much as possible. Um, because I also looked up today, the most recent number on student loan debt nationally oh. is almost $1.5 trillion. Well, lucky for you, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has a solution to that. La revolution, my friend. <laughs> raise taxes. <laughs> or that. She said, or if we that. get rid of all the taxes on, you know, if we get rid of the, uh, what was it? The Trump tax cuts, a trillion dollars we could then uh, use to pay off all everyone's student debt. But then everyone would have to work three jobs. So I'm not really sure that's going to help. <laughs> well, speaking of three jobs, Tyler, I think it's time that we get back to our third job. And we let everyone listening get back to uh, their second or third job so that we can keep the unemployment rate really, really low. I'm down for it. All right, my friend. We'll see you next week. All right. See you, Kevin.